just want to make clear that this was the lectionary text, the lectionary gospel text, not a Bert thing. I didn't, you know, pick this one to be, you know, provocative. Or anything. Yeah, I just took the lectionary text. So we usually focus on the first part of this passage, which is quite radical. And Jesus tells a man to sell all that he has and give the money to the poor and then says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person or a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And there's a lot to talk about there, but I want to focus on the last part of this passage. And I'm going to read it here from the New Revised Standard Version. Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or fathers or children or fields for my sake and the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus promises that we will get a hundredfold in this lifetime, houses and fields, as well as more family members. And now I'm sure that prosperity theology hucksters could have a field day with this, and they probably have, I don't know. But they could read this as a promise of great wealth to those who have already given everything to God. You leave everything, you get it back a hundredfold. And by giving to God, they are obviously mean giving to their own telehuckster ministries. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. This is not about individual wealth. Jesus isn't reversing what he just said, saying that the kingdom of God is about great individual wealth. And you must you know, give away everything to get into the kingdom. But once you're in, you're going to be rich. This is Jesus is talking about common ownership, which is what we see in the early church in the opening chapters of Acts in Acts 2 and 4, where it says that the church in Jerusalem shared all things in common. In that situation, the church in Jerusalem, people who had houses and fields, sold them and the proceeds were distributed among the people according to need. So houses and fields were shared in that way. But selling and distributing the proceeds doesn't seem to be the only way that this happened. Matthew and Mark indicate that there was shared ownership through radical hospitality. People welcomed into homes so that in a sense, they had many houses and fields. Jesus is teaching that in the kingdom of God, in God's new society, we are all one family and that we share houses and fields so everyone is housed and no one is landless. Apparently, the early church practiced a fair amount of this kind of common ownership. Now, another common mistake that some people make when reading this, reading about common ownership in the early church, is thinking that the early churches were separatist communities, sharing all things in common in secluded communities, separate from the world. But that's not the case either. Not to take anything away from the Hutterites or the Bruderhof, we have much that we could learn from their very faithful practices of common ownership, and especially the Bruderhof, I, I know, are not completely separate. They're actually very engaged in society. But the early church remained very engaged in the world. In fact, the early church was trying to transform the world, to transform society as leaven working through dough. That was one analogy that Jesus used in a parable in Matthew 13. Earlier in Mark, in chapter 6, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to go from village to village, preaching the good news of God's new society, taking nothing with them so that they are reliant 
on hospitality, thereby creating a network of houses and villages in which the members of this movement are all welcome, a network of houses and villages that would become the new society so that they have many houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields. This is building the new society in the shell of the old with a prophetic voice calling the old society to be transformed. Unless we think this is just too radical to be true, there was precedent for this in the ancient world. Josephus describes the Essenes in a very similar way. Josephus, the, the great Jewish historian in the first century, in the late first century, and the Essenes were a, a group of, of Jewish people. He describes Essenes as uh, rejecting wealth, rejecting excess wealth, having common ownership of property, living among the people in towns and cities, and being communicative. That's the word. So I'll read you the quote from Josephus. It's pretty, pretty powerful. He's talking about the Essenes. He says, these men are despisers of riches and so very communicative as raises our admiration. Nor is there anyone to be found among them who has more than another. For it is a law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order. Insomuch that among them all, there is no appearance of poverty or excess of riches, but everyone's possessions are intermingled with every other's possessions. And there is, as it were, one patrimony among all the brethren. They have no one certain city, but many of them dwell in every city. And if any of their sect come from other places, what they have lies open for them, just as if it were their own. And they go into such as they never knew before, as if they had been ever so long acquainted with them. For which reason they carry nothing at all with them when they travel into remote parts. From Josephus. This very much resembles Jesus sending out the 12 disciples among the towns and villages, taking nothing with them, relying on hospitality to establish a network of houses and villages where Jesus' followers are welcome, creating a new society of hospitality and common ownership. These early churches, as they practiced common ownership, remained very engaged in the wider society. They spoke prophetically to it while embodying alternative practices. They spoke and acted prophetically to transform society into one in which everyone might see themselves as related to everyone else. And because of that, everyone is housed because private ownership of land and houses is not sacrosanct, but rather the common good where everyone is provided for according to need, that is sacrosanct. And so what does that say to us modern Christians at a time when we have been largely enculturated into modern capitalist society where private ownership is held above the common good, where private ownership is more important than making sure that all people are housed and safe. In our society, private ownership is sacrosanct unless the land is needed for an oil pipeline or a freeway because those things are seen as the common good, but not housing everyone is not. So what do we do? Well, a lot of churches are trying, each in their own way, to act against the grain. Many churches do see that we have not housed everyone and have decided to do something, have decided to address the widespread problem of homelessness and housing insecurity. Here in Pasadena, Lake Avenue Church hands out over a, upwards of a quarter of a million dollars in rental and utility assistance every year, most of it's rental assistance. 
about half of it goes to people in their congregation, half of it goes to people not in their congregation. That's one church. Pasadena Covenant Church hosted the bad weather shelter in their building for 30 years. And now Trinity Lutheran Church is uh, set to take over. All Saints Church started Union Station, the big homeless shelter in town that we often participate in. And there are now three locations. We're familiar with the one on South Raymond, but there's actually three locations now. Pasadena Church and Pasadena Presbyterian Church both serve hot meals out of their facilities twice per week. More than 12 churches in Pasadena operate their own food banks. At least two churches I know of run their own transitional shelters. Friends Indeed, which runs a food bank, a rental and utility assistance program, and provides emergency housing through motel vouchers, was started by the churches of Pasadena over 130 years ago. The largest affordable housing provider in Pasadena is a church. Community Bible Church operates King Villages and Community Arms, providing 446 units of affordable housing. Other churches also provide smaller quantities of affordable housing, such as Pasadena Foursquare Church, which has nine affordable cottage units. And now we have the opportunity to build on that. Despite all that effort by the churches, it's not really enough. Many of you are already familiar, because I've been talking about it now for quite a while, about the campaign by MHCH, Making Housing and Community Happen, to help churches build affordable housing. There are 10 churches in Pasadena that have expressed wanting to build, use their land to have affordable housing built. Seven of them are consulting with MHCH at this point. And so most of these churches are not zoned appropriately. They're either not zoned for housing at all, they're zoned, zoned at too low a density for a, an affordable housing development to, to, to pencil out. You need like 40 to 50 units for it to pencil out. And so we, are, we have proposed a zoning amendment to Pasadena, and we've worked with the city on this. It's very detailed. We looked at every church site and have suggested zoning that is sensitive to the neighborhood. So we, we have presented that. And a, a key part of our initiative are the churches on North Fair Oaks, with, which have formed their own Northwest Empowerment Initiative. And Dr. Gilbert Walton is here, and I'm going to have him come right now and tell about that initiative and also some of his story. So what I want to do is just let you know what I'm doing now with the North Fair Oaks Empowerment Initiative and why that's important. Uh, some of you have probably heard my story and I will retell parts of it so you will know what that means. But when I, my church relocated to North Fair Oaks, I didn't know much about this community at all and didn't actually think much about it. Most of my friends in Pasadena live in other parts of Pasadena and I run, walk, bike in other parts of Pasadena, but had no occasion to go to Northwest Pasadena by and large. When my church was located there, I didn't know what to think about it. I could obviously see that it was a community that was divested and didn't look like the rest of Pasadena. So one day after church, I just decided to drive around through the community, through the streets to see what was there. And I saw a lot of modest homes. But it really became important to me when we saw a decline in our church membership because people could no longer afford to live in Pasadena. Sadly, today, there are only about two of the members of my church who live in Pasadena. Most other people had to relocate and live from outside. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to take this once thriving community and see if we could restore that. And in driving to my church, 
sometimes to do work around the church, whatever the case may be, driving past other churches, you would see that church land was underused. It was sitting there vacant most of those days. And so the idea of being able to have church land zone to build affordable housing is entirely practical and that it would help the churches to meet its mission needs, but also would provide some finances for the churches. And so what we did with the North Barrels Empowerment Initiative was through a series of interviews, focus groups in the community and talking to the community, working with them in terms of what they wanted. We came up with several asks for making the streets more safe to walk, safe for crosswalks, traffic lights, to beautify it, to make some of it green, to uh, have parklets and other places that would invite people to come out and congregate together. So in about 2015, we had a street fair and I saw all of these people, all of this diversity, all of this energy come out. The problem with that area is that there's no draw. There's no place to go and make that a reality. And so working with the idea, the motto of let's beautify and not gentrify so that we won't see displacement and a decline in the people who have historically lived there made a lot of sense to me. So when I was contemplating my retirement and what I would, could do that would be useful I decided to become involved in this. And it is a tremendous thing for churches to create the opportunity for affordable housing. And there's a church just north of my church, a couple of blocks, New Life Holiness, that has gone through the process of looking at their land and they have the opportunity to build 52 units on their land, but it's not properly zoned. So that's why your support your letters, your testifying before the city council is important. Unless you think that putting affordable housing up is just a matter of putting a roof over someone's head and surrounding them with four walls. I just want to tell you something about my family and what housing means. I was given the occasion to sort of rethink this a couple of days ago. I was looking at a Pew Research and it was talking about the seminal events in our nation, in our life. And they broke it down by ethnic groups. They broke it down by generations, men, women, etc. So in the nation, they were talking about the fact that 9-11 and the election of Barack Obama were the two things that were pretty much uniform across all of those demographics. But for African-Americans, it was the events of the 60s that made the difference, the height of the civil rights movement. And for me, being the youngest son of a sharecropper in Alabama who left that sharecropping life because he was being cheated, not being appropriately paid for what he produced. And deciding that he needed to do something, we moved to Birmingham. But we moved into rodent-infested, rent-only housing, toilet in the backyard. We would take our baths by heating water or wood-burning stove mix it in a number two aluminum tub. And we had rats to deal with. The walls were so shabby that my neighbors and I would shoot water pistols through the walls at each other, the children. There was bootlegging in the community that was fighting, that was all of that. My mother didn't drive at the time, but she was looking for a better thing for us, her five children. And she walked through a community called Ellsbury Community Park. It was affordable low middle income kind of house and just a couple of blocks away from where we live on the other side of the railroad tracks in the packing house. And so my mother walking me to school one day when I was seven, 
very embarrassed. I've been walking to school by myself for a year. What are you walking with me for? And she told me not to come home today, but to go to the house, she pointed it out. She said, there's a preacher who lives there. His name is Reverend Levant. Go there and tell him who you are and wait. Didn't ask any questions. So when I came home from school that day, I went to the house, went into his backyard, playing with his dog. He invited me in. I declined that. So it turns out a truck pulled up. And it was our furniture, my father, my siblings. And we were moving into that neighborhood. So all of a sudden now, we had a floor furnace. We had a bathtub that was indoors. We had trees. We had grass. Changed our lives. I would have been expected from the neighborhood that I came from to be the ward of a carceral state, to be dead, to be a drug abuser, alcoholic, undereducated, consigned to some kind of poor job. But here's what happened. We moved into that affordable housing, which is the foundation of a community. And that community gave us a broader idea of what we could be. So my mother used to say, God to give us some smart children. They're going to be doctors and nurses. My sister was an RN. I became a doctor. My two brothers were supervisors on their jobs in computer, radio communications. And one of my brothers retired in the school. The reason I say that is because that changed our lives. We were among the first of our generation to go to college. So now of my 10 siblings, seven of them have four years of college. One has a master's degree. Two are doctors, one is an ophthalmologist, one is a plastic surgeon. So affordable housing is a seminal event in our family's life. And so when we create affordable housing, it's not just housing, we're creating futures. And that not only happens locally, I'm from Alabama, but here I am in California. I have relatives who are in New York, et cetera, et cetera. We're all over the country. And so although we are acting locally, we're actually having a global impact. And this can actually change the world. It sounds like it's dramatic and it's really way out there, but the fact of the matter is true. It's evidenced in my life. So what we are able to do, what my brothers and sisters are able to do for their children, and hopefully will be multiplied down through the ages. When we look at these housing, I would think about it and say 52 units. Doesn't sound like a lot. Bert just told you a lot and it's not enough. But just think about the fact that if each one of those households has four people, that's 200 and some odd people. Those 200 people, a reasonable percentage of them, get educated, change their life, avoid the traps that this society all too often sets for poor people, people of color, and are able to instill that in their children, then that just spreads and spreads and spreads. You can change the world. So when you are taking the time to write emails and you testify before the city council, I want you to understand what you're doing. You're not just supporting housing. You're giving life choice. So uh, we need people to, to testify at city council. You know, Jesus and his disciples did this. They testified at city council. You know, we think when Jesus went into a synagogue that he was going into a religious gathering. The synagogues in the first century were not merely religious gatherings. They were actually town governments. Uh, this is New Testament rich, uh, scholar Richard Horsley describes uh, synagogues in the first century this way. He says, synagogues were a form of both self-governance and communal, political, and religious life. The local village assembly had a handful of officers who presided at meetings 
took care of collecting and distributing goods for the destitute, administered beatings ordered by local courts established on an ad hoc basis by the assemblies, by the synagogues, and attended, for example, to construction projects of the local assembly, waterworks, etc. So that's what a synagogue actually was in the first century, much like our city government. So when we go to the city council to speak, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And we are in a, little, in a much better position. While I think synagogues were more democratic than they are generally recognized, and I say that in the wider meaning of the word democratic, they were more democratic than is widely uh, understood, they were still under a brutal Roman occupation. And not only did Jesus and his disciples not have citizenship in the Roman Empire, neither did virtually anyone else in the synagogues. So synagogue power was severely limited. But we don't live under a, uh, the occupation of a foreign power. And our city council has considerable power. Not unlimited, but it's considerable. And we are allowed to speak at every city council meeting. They'll give us three minutes at the mic for anything on the agenda, and even for matters not on the agenda. And, that's, and the matters on the, not on the agenda time is what we've been using recently because our rezoning church land is not on the agenda. It was taken off and that's part of the problem. So in recent weeks, uh, I want to say this, I've been recruiting people from our church to speak. And uh, so far, this is just very recently uh, since the end of August. Karen New, Ezra Muthaya, Isabel Muthaya, David Gist, Erica Nellison, and Sam Bills have all testified uh, in support of rezoning church land for affordable housing at uh, Pasadena City Council meeting. And Thea DeGroote is on deck for the 18th. So and now if even, and you don't have to be a resident of Pasadena, uh, you wanna, when you speak, you wanna say your connection, if you go to church in Pasadena, if you work in Pasadena. But I, I invite you to you know, let me know if you want to, if you wanna testify, and I can talk with you about messaging and how to do it and all the details. And then also whether or not you can do that, we also have letters that we're going to have up at that table after the service, and you can sign a letter. All you have to do is sign your name and, and print your name and either put your Pasadena address or Pasadena Mennonite Church, just to show your Pasadena connection. So all you have to do is, is do that. The other thing we have is a rent control petition, and uh, Michelle White is here for that. She's with Pasadena Tenants Union. A bunch of us went out and collected signatures yesterday for, for that. And rent control is something, if you really want to stop the displacement immediately, Rent control is the best way to do it because building housing is, is great, but it takes years. It takes years to get this stuff built. And rent control doesn't mean that rents can't be increased. It just limits it. And it stops the displacement in its tracks, most of it. 